This is Inside Yale Law School, the podcast series designed to give you a peek inside to the scholars, the thinkers, the teachers, and the game changers of Yale Law School. I'm Heather Gerken, the Dean, here to open a little window into the world of this remarkable place. To me, it's really important that students learn the law, right? You can't criticize something or try to change it unless you know what it is. So we do do a lot of serious, you know, work learning the law, but we also are always asking questions about sort of, you know, why is it this way? How did it come to be this way? And how could it be otherwise? I am thrilled to introduce Amy Kapczynski, Professor of Law and Faculty Co-Director of the Yale Global Health Justice Partnership. Amy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So there's so much to cover with regard to your work. I wonder if I could just bring you back to the work you started as a 1L, because it's kind of amazing to know that you spearheaded a campaign as a 1L that led Yale and Bristol-Myers Squibb to change their policy on a set of of drugs. I wonder if you could just kind of fill fill out the story. Sure, yeah. So um, I have very deep connections to this space, and they do start as a student. Um, So before I became a student, actually, I started working on access to AIDS medicines. And the issue was so long ago now, was in the late 1990s when, when I started working on these issues. The issue was that there were, you know, tens of millions of people around the world living with HIV AIDS who had almost no access to treatments, which are really transforming people's lives here because there are medicines you can take if you have HIV that make you, well, you have a chronic disease, but, you know, you can survive. And those medicines cost at the time around ten dollars to $15,000 per person per year. And it's a lifelong treatment, which is quite, doesn't sound expensive if you think about drug costs now, but it was really very, very prohibitive if you were thinking about a country like South Africa, where one in five adults was HIV positive. Um, and What I learned from activists uh, working on these issues was that the drugs weren't expensive because they were expensive to make. They were expensive because of patents. Um, Patents are rights that the government gives you. I now teach intellectual property law, so this is a good plug for for my class. Patents are rights that the government gives you that allow you to exclude others from making or using or selling your invention. And drug companies get patents. And they allow them to sort of set monopoly prices. And so what was happening around the world was that they were pricing, in a country like South Africa, they were pricing the drugs at the price that only rich people could afford, if them, you know. So there were probably, you know, just a few hundred people who could afford those medicines in South Africa when so many needed them um, because they cost the same as they cost here, $10,000 per person per year. And we learned that generic companies in India could make them for $100 a year. And at that point, you could start to build programs. You could start to really build systems to get medicines to people. And so I, um, through these sort of circles of activists, started working with Doctors Without Borders. And they had just gotten a Nobel Prize, and they were using that money to build a campaign for access to medicines. And they wanted the companies to lower their prices. And they knew that this was possible because they knew the drugs weren't expensive to make. But the companies were really refusing to do that at the time. In fact, they were suing Nelson Mandela uh, himself um, as the kind of lead party in in a lawsuit about the some a law that the South African government wanted to use to bring these Indian drugs into the country. And so they had taken a very hard line and they were really refusing really significant price decreases. And Doctors Without Borders knew that it was possible to, you know, they wanted to find a target and that target was Yale University because Yale held the patents on some of these drugs 
uh, on, on one of these drugs in particular, a drug called D4T, and Yale had licensed it to Bristol-Myers-Squibb. And I knew as a student that there were many people who work for the university because they care deeply about the public interest and that people like the scientists who work here would not have been happy with this situation. And in fact, found the guy, his name was William Prusthoff, who was the scientist who had developed this drug. And he ended up playing a really important role in this story. He came out publicly and said he wanted the companies to behave better and he wanted Yale to give up its patent rights. Um, and so as a student, what I did was what a lot of student activists do. I ran around, I talked to a lot of people, uh, organized other students, and uh, was sort of the go-between between Doctors Without Borders and Yale to say, you can do this. It's not going to destroy the pharmaceutical industry. In fact, it's going to save many, many people's lives. Um, and to its credit, Yale first initially said no, but there was a lot of media attention, <laughs> a lot of organizing. Um, and a few weeks later, they renegotiated their deal with the drug company and allowed the drug to be made generically available actually in all of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so the price plummeted, was like 3% of the price um, kind of the next day. And um, it also... I think kind of played a role in the drug companies becoming more coming more to their senses and in sort of building the activist kind of momentum um, to 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 overcome these patent barriers. And now today we have tens of millions of people on on AIDS drugs all around the world, and and we built those programs. They're not perfect. There's still issues, but um, but yeah, it was a very powerful lesson to me about the role of law and the role of organizing um, in in change, even around things that can seem really tragic and intractable. Now, so I, f I still feel like telling all the 1Ls who are listening to this that it's okay for them just to focus on being a 1L. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's setting an awfully high bar for your first year of law school. Um, but but I, I can just see how that shaped your career because you've devoted your life to issues related to global health and justice. And your scholarship uh, has often been built on those issues. I wonder if – let's talk a little bit just about your scholarship, if you could sort of – walk me through. I mean, my favorite one of your articles is on the flu network. And I, and by that, it is not the Harry Potter <laughs> flu network, but, uh, but um, a really interesting study of the way we develop flu vaccines. But I wonder if you could just sort of give us an overview of the work that you've done on that front and, um, and its relationship to intellectual property. Although I sometimes do tell people that, that your aim is to take the property out of intellectual <laughs> property. Yeah. Um, so I do, uh, this, this work was exactly what got me into studying intellectual property. Um, and I remember actually, you know, telling professors, including some of mine from college, that I was interested in this intellectual property stuff. And they looked at me like, you've lost your soul in law school. And I was like, no, 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 this is really interesting stuff. Um, you know, this is the lifeblood of the modern economy, if you think about it. And I came came to learn this, um, you know, sort of studying and, and working on these issues. If you think about it, you know, when, when we had sort of agricultural capitalism, what mattered most foundationally were things like land rights and, and what, what, you know, what kind of workers' rights you had. Um, you know, in industrial age, you had the emergence of the corporation and the law was really powerfully shaping the way the economy worked then. But today, intellectual property, which covers artistic works, but also trademarks and, and patents and so inventions and science, I mean, that really governs an enormous amount of how um, we uh, shape the economy, what kinds of things are produced, who gets access to them. Um, and what we can do online. And so it's a really vibrant um, area. It's hard law to teach because it changes so fast. There's always Supreme Court cases on intellectual property law every year. Um, uh, but I became very interested in just understanding this from the inside, kind of from a public interest perspective, right? And, and wanting to understand like what were just ways that this law could be organized 
uh, given how many interests there were that kind of converged at the point of these issues. And, and so, um, so what my scholarship has been about for many years has been um, st- starting from these access to medicines issues, writing about ways that the law could help mediate um, the, you know, the rights of private rights holders uh, and the, uh, accommodate the needs of the public. And so, for example, one of my first articles was about how universities could change how they licensed their drugs to allow them, in fact, to be used all um, across the world in the global south because there really isn't any market in most of the rest of the world, um, particularly in places like sub-Saharan Africa. It's like 1% of the world's market. So you could just write a license in advance and uh, figure out how to just sort of carve off that market and and not really uh, undermine the incentives to innovate. And so so sort of getting inside of those arguments, sometimes from a practical perspective, um, was some of what I've done in my scholarship. And, and, and then often also um, trying to get really at the heart of the issue. So intellectual property law really does help provide incentives to create things. And yet it has this high cost, which is that you could be a lot of people can't get access to whatever's created. And so that's a really foundational dilemma, you know. And so often we sort of talk about trying to get the balance right. But there's kind of a way in which sometimes you can't really get the balance right. Um, you really are going to undermine access. And so, you know, I've also been very interested in, in what the piece about the flu network was about is, are there other ways to develop these critical um, goods that don't have the same trade-offs. Um, you know, there are other problems with, say, government-funded science. Um, there are certainly, it's not a simple enterprise, but when the government funds science, you can say, and they, they typically do, well, everybody can have access to this at the end of the day. You have to share your data, for example. And so, um, so I wanted to be sure to not only work on the access side and sort of figure out what are exceptions to these rights, but also because all of us care about, if you care about health, you want new drugs, you want new medicines, and sort of figure out, well, how, how can you develop them better? Can we get more innovation uh, out of a system that actually um, uh, uh, is publicly funded? And so the Flute Network piece that I wrote was about um, how the you know the flu nut, flu vaccines that you and I probably both take every year um, that everybody listening to this you know has probably good access to uh, if you're certainly if you're in the U.S. every year the strains that go into that are actually gathered analyzed um, and then reproduced by a global public network that's founded. Um, by the World Health Organization that collects labs from more than 100 countries and that that does this sort of scientific enterprise that's really, really important and that couldn't really be done well in markets. And so part of that study was, how does that work? How do we make open science work? Um, and, and part of what, what drove me to that and some of the work that I'm doing now is about how public science might go further than just this sort of more basic research and go all the way into production. So California is about to make its own insulin. That's because there's been a lot of issues for people who are diabetic in this country getting access to their insulin. And they're trying to sort of solve the problem by bringing manufacturing to the United States. Um, so it intersects with a lot of issues that people may be thinking about with respect to industrial policy today. Now I would put that in a broader frame of my work on law and political economy, um, which I'm happy to talk a little bit more about. So, so the Flu Network is a good example of the way that your work is highly interdisciplinary, manages to be granular, but still keep an eye on the macro and doesn't just depend on sort of top down legal solutions, but really understands how institutions work to, to make it. So it's, it's, it's one of the things I love about your work. I feel like law and political economy 
is the bigger version, uh, uh, the more s system-wide version of the work that you've been doing in the space of IP. And you're one of the founding parents of it. For listeners who don't know what it is, I'll let Amy explain it <laughs> in full. But I do want to say that I, I don't remember there being this much energy, uh, intellectual energy among faculty and students around a project in decades. And so it's really exciting for, for it to be centered here with the work that you're doing. And I wonder if you could just tell talk about about the, the what the work itself is and then where where the movement is great sure um, so yeah so that's exactly how I see it is that you know I had been doing work on some of these issues that only now what I call law and political economy work and that was true for many of us I think it, there's a little bit of a sort of generational aspect to this that there were many people who were starting to think about you know how does law shape the economy <laughs> and how might we uh, reorganize law to make our economy more just, and also to think about the economy a little bit more expansively than I think we commonly do. Um, uh, you know, so the economy exists in many places, uh, not just the marketplace, but also here we are in open science, thinking about sort of how do we generate the resources that we need to thrive. Um, so, so what the law and political economy sort of is, is really an attempt to intellectually kind of make space for questions about how law shapes, um, shapes the economy, how politics shapes the economy, and push back against, I think, some of what the, you know, it, when I was gr kind of growing up, coming through college, coming through law school, we understood as the kind of way you were supposed to think about markets. You know, the market is, you know, the law of supply and demand. It just is this thing. You have to follow these rules. Um, and in fact, in law schools too, we were taught about efficiency and how the sort of you, you come into law school thinking we're going to talk all about justice. And then it turned out that there were a lot of places where we didn't talk about justice. And those were commonly classes like contracts or torts where instead you talked about what was efficient. And that was treated as something kind of neutral, um, and I think, you know, the, the, the law and political economy kind of framework is trying to challenge some of the ways that we've thought about markets and say they're not natural. They're actually made in politics. We're using insights from the legal realists, from critical legal studies, also from critical race um, theory and, and feminist studies to sort of t think about how law actually constructs our political economy and how you could reconstruct it to be more just. And so part of what you're tapping into, the sort of the sense that of excitement about this is that it really is uh, also expressing uh, and it's become a place where people can talk about what we feel are some of the most urgent debates of our time. So we're thinking, if you're thinking about climate change or you're thinking about inequality, um, and the sort of Occupy moment or the financial crisis, uh, or you're thinking about kind of racialized dispossession and, and housing and how can we build housing for all. Those are all questions of political economy that you really need to be able to get into from more perspectives with more values in hand than I think many of us were sort of taught to think about the economy with. Um, so so that's it's broadly is a, a scholarly movement, although there's student there's a student network. There's more than 30 student groups around the country that have their own, you know, um, reading groups and speaker series. And we're all trying to sort of rethink the political economy and how does law structure it and how can we, um, how can we rebuild it so that we can work against things like climate change, the concentration of corporate power, inequality, um, um, even, even things like the carceral state, which, you know, are shaped very deeply by political economy as well, I would say. In the scholarly network, it's sort of been astonishing how many of them 
have come through this place and how many of them are connected to you and a few other scholars here that, that have been inside this school. Um, it, it, it just, I sometimes say to people, this place, it's, it's like you throw a tire into, into the water, a reef builds out around it. And it's been sort of remarkable to see just sort of putting this in the water and how a whole ecosystem has evolved around it. You're also though seeing it affect policy and move into and move into that piece of the world. And I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about not just the scholars who are doing this work, but mm-hmm. the, the folks who are fellow travelers who are in the policy world mm-hmm. and, and connected to these projects. Yeah, one way people who are interested in this might get a good flavor of what we're doing is oh, we have a blog called the Law and Political Economy blog, and you'll find advocates and activists and scholars all writing on it. Um, and it's an accessible way in to also show you, like, where, well, if you're interested in housing, um, you know, so I can give you just a few examples off the top of my head. So people are, who are interested in housing, you know, go on the blog and read some of the work about tenants unions, you know. So so we're trying to think about how, stru- how law structures political and economic power. And so taking examples from the labor union context and bringing them over to the tenants union context and saying, well, what if tenants could organize together and the law facilitated that the way it facilitates labor organizing? Um, there's work, of course, on, on labor organizing as well. Probably one of the most prominent examples, actually, one of the students that helped me make my first law and political economy class was Lena Khan, who's now the chair of the FTC and who is uh, taking these ideas about the importance of how antitrust law was reinterpreted, really without any warrant in the statute, I would say, and I think she and others have shown, um, to prioritize low prices and really wipe away everything else, wipe away the impact of mergers on, on workers, wipe away their its impact on kind of the power of a corporation to kind of govern whether it's Amazon or others, the way the market works or what we're allowed to do. Um, so, so Lena's bringing many of these ideas into the FTC. Um, you know, on my mind today, um, for a very sad reason, Adi Barkan, who was a graduate of ours and a wonderful advocate and activist um, who just passed away from ALS, um, Adi, Adi was one of this sort of whole generation that that really grew these ideas from the ground up. So, you know, with us, but certainly not because of us. Adi had started a campaign um, about the Fed. So, I think in the era of inflation, we're all really aware that what the Fed does affects workers. But when I came to law school, no one was talking about the Fed. Who cared about you know what about low wage workers and how do we you know, how do we think about their interests? And Adi organized low-wage workers to go to the Fed. Um, I remember him telling me how freaked out he thought um, people were at this meeting in somewhere in Colorado when they showed up with a bunch of low-wage workers. And they said, hey, when you're setting interest rates, you have to take our interests into account. It's not just a technical matter, which is, I think, how we had been taught. It was, that's just a technical, that's for the economists and for the experts. It was a, it's a hugely important distributive question, how we set interest rates. So Adi was part of a, a group called the Center for Popular Democracy. And um, a, and there's a bunch of new organizations that have lawyers, some of them YLS lawyers, uh, working on organizing in a different spirit and a different way, trying to build power and work on economic justice questions. And we've actually worked now with some of those organizations to have a summer academy on law and organizing, where we're bringing students from different law schools, including ours, but, but also many others, to work with organizers and, and learn a little bit about law and political economy theory and, and try to figure out how do you build power for ordinary people um, and, uh, and how does it help to know about law to do that? 
What I love about that too is that is that organizing has actually been a sort of part of, of this place for a long time, especially because of the work of our clinics who often move from litigation to policy and back again. Um, it's also been work, the work that you've been doing, and, and I, I realize this is going to be the most intimidating interview imaginable because people aren't going to imagine that you either sleep or that there are at least two of you. <laughs> but um, talk a little bit about the Global Health Justice Partnership that you do with Greg Gonzalez and, and Ali Miller because it, it's had an enormous impact and and sort of straddles, again, straddles theory and practice in a way that is really interesting. You know, one of the things I like about teaching at Yale is that there are many faculty members um, who do both writing and and practical work, and it's one of the reasons I became a law professor uh, was the thought that there was something you could you, you could combine these two. And for me, they've always been really synergistic, so you kind of heard that story. So we have for many years run a, a practicum, we call it, um, um, which works with partners on global health issues and also local health issues. So we've worked on a really wide range of things like the accountability um, of um, the UN for cholera being spread in Haiti. That was one of our first projects. We worked on actually quarantine laws long before COVID, um, uh, which were used improperly, we thought, um, in the context of Ebola, when there was this big, big scare about Ebola, but not really very much Ebola at all in the United States. Um, so we've done a little bit of litigating, but mostly um, more, I would say, partnerships trying to help build organizational power, um, sometimes here with local um, harm reduction communities or sex work communities in New Haven who are facing, um, you know, sort of health impacts from the way that law, um, uh, you know, treats their communities or the way the policing works here in New Haven. Um, and so we do a wide range of projects. We've worked, um, a lot of the work that I've done there has been around drug pricing, in fact. So we took some of the lessons that we had learned internationally and tried to bring them into the United States as the sort of, I think the public awareness of the problem of drug pricing was really starting to peak. There was a new drug for hepatitis C, which is a chronic disease which affects, you know, affected 5 million Americans when we started this work. Some of them have been cured, but certainly not all of them because the drug cost $100,000. This was a drug that was also needed very much in prisons, which do not have an unlimited budget despite the constitutional right. You know, kids, you got to go to law school to figure out why that one's true. Um, but uh, we, we wanted to figure out ways to sort of bring the prices of those drugs down. And so through the clinic, we developed a proposal um, about um, something called government patent use, which allows the government, in fact, we discovered um, that the government has the right to use patents. And so, you know, do things like um, uh, import generic drugs or negotiate lower prices. And, and, and those arguments did help um, in um, particularly in the state context, actually um, get the prices of some of those drugs down. So we've really worked on a wide range of issues. In COVID, we worked on community health workers and sort of how to get community health workers um, to more places to provide the sort of bottom-up um, services and to also build power among community health workers or people who really share experience with um, with those that they're helping. And so we have one, some wonderful community health worker programs in New Haven. Students can work with them through our medical legal partnerships. One of the things that, that, that it's been sort of, I think, a touchstone for you is the ability to speak in many registers. You're writing theoretically ambitious law review articles uh, as part of your academic portfolio. You're testifying in front of Congress. You're writing for popular 
outlets. One of the things I was especially impressed by is that you also are in conversation with doctors across the country and, and have been able to speak with and on behalf of them and organize them. And, and I really saw that, especially during COVID. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about about that work, which I know you often did with Greg Gonzalez. Yeah. So I feel like those of us who had worked on HIV could see the moment that COVID hit some of the things that were going to happen. Um, and one of the things that we could see is that we were not well prepared as a society to provide the kind of support that people were going to need in order to allow people to safely stay home and to allow people to sort of do what they wanted to do, which if you remember back to the very early days of COVID before the kind of profound political polarization, like there was an enormous sense of people really wanting to kind of hold together. And that's something I've always seen in people in crises. Um, and it's a real credit to, I think, what we're capable of. Um, but we didn't have the tools that we needed to uh, allow people to stay home and allow people to um, to, you know, we, didn't, we don't have paid sick leave <laughs> in this country. Um, you know, we had hospitals that, that, you know, could have been sites where ICE would have come and, and to causing people not to go to the hospital if they were very sick. We had prisons that were churning people in and out. And we know from years of work on HIV that prisons are incubators for disease and that the whole community wasn't going to be safe unless we did something about that. So, one of the very first things we did was try to put together a kind of experts letter, um, which uh, we did. God, it was very early. I, I think it was before my children were even sent home from school <laughs> um, when in, in, in March 2020, um, we got very quickly hundreds and hundreds of experts signing on to this letter saying, we need to act now. This is very serious. And we need to start thinking about not just how do we quarantine people when, when they, we had had a travel ban at that time, but how do you support people? So that they can do the right thing because fundamentally if you don't support people to do the right thing you just mandate them both people aren't going to always do it and you're going to end up discrediting the government and i think that at the end of the day one of the things i've seen and, and feel very deeply about COVID is that the lack of that caring infrastructure actually is part of the political polarization and the the sort of real anger that people had with public health in the long run because we didn't support people we kind of ended up telling them what to do more than we supported them to do the right thing and I I think that 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 was a real problem. A lot of my work in those that period um, became trying to figure out how to propose policies that would actually provide some of that support. So you know, you know, get get um, hospitals to you know be allowed to say we're not going to have ice here, or um, get you know we yeah, we did we actually got you know the vaccines were free. <laughs> um, it's a certain amount of healthcare was free. You know, in a certain way, we kind of almost created a sort of jury rigged uh, like kind of national healthcare system, just a little shadow of that um, to be able to to provide medicines and and care for people, and so. So, you know, it showed some of what we could do. You know, we canceled the rent for a bit. We canceled student loans. Um, we did quite a lot. Um, and unfortunately, I think, you know, we have not really taken from that some of the lessons that I would hope we would, which is that we need this long-term follow-through now. Like, you know, paid sick leave shouldn't be controversial, uh, you know, once you appreciate the effects on, uh, on everybody. But also we need more broadly the kinds of social support that I think will allow us to rebuild the solidarity that, you know, maybe people can think back to um, in those early moments. You're doing all, I know you're doing all of that during COVID, uh, you know, helping save the pieces of the world that you could save, but you were also amazingly enough at, at that moment, uh, caring for two kids, uh, um, speaking of the lack of infrastructure uh, at home and, and also teaching our students. And 
you won the teaching award, uh, the YLW plus teaching award during that period. And I remember vividly, Amy, I don't know if you remember this. We were all looking to our best teachers at that moment to help us think about how to make the Zoom environment plausible. We were, we we're all doing our best to sort of to keep connections with our students and to to find a way to make the education as, as good as it could be. And you did a presentation for the faculty, and I remember it because I think you turned showed us how to turn ourselves into a banana. Mm-hmm. Um, just I did. To, just I, to keep I, I did the world going. <laughs> and I rem- and a few weeks after that, the famed cat video uh, with the lawyer came on, and I th- I remember thinking to myself, actually, Amy should have told us how to turn ourselves off from being a banana. But but um, can you talk just a little? bit about your teaching generally not just during COVID but but generally because you you're a beloved teacher and a, a wonderful mentor I mean I feel very privileged to be able to teach <clears throat> um, and to be able to teach students who are so enthusiastic and excited to be in the classroom um, I I think of teaching really at its best as a way of being able to be curious together about things. It can be hard sometimes to find that curiosity because there's a lot of hard work to study law and there's a lot to master. And I even myself sometimes get caught up in just trying to like, all right, here's the statute and there's 16 things you got to know about it. Um, But I think I would say what I love best about my classroom is that we often do really cultivate a sense of curiosity. Like let's, let's, this is weird. Why does it work this way? How could it work otherwise? And to me, it's really important that students learn the law, right? You can't criticize something or try to change it unless you know what it is. So we do do a lot of serious, you know, work learning the law, but we also are always asking questions about sort of, you know, why is it this way? How did it come to be this way? And how could it be otherwise? Um, and I think I think that every law school should 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 be doing that, right? What are the real values that you have? What did you walk into law school with? What did you want to do? Why did you come here? And how do you make the law do work for that community? Don't forget who you were. You know, there's some sense we're going to teach you to think like a lawyer, and you're going to be a different person. Well, all your experiences will change you, but take the things you know and love, the things you care about, and and use the law to try to make the world a better place. And so what I hope is some of that spirit comes through in the classroom and and um, and that we get to, to both do the hard work of, of learning a real skill that can be used um, and we sort of feel the kind of commonality of doing it together and doing it in the service of something that, that really matters. From your 1L year onward, you can just really see the through line in all the work you're doing, even as you do things that are in very different parts of the world. So organizing on the ground, changing policy in Washington, pushing forward a new intellectual movement. It's all it's all there's a clear through line. And although I I, I do, again, wonder whether people are going to think we're talking about more than one person. Um, so I wonder if you might talk about something you do badly or uh, uh, or, or talk a little bit at least about how you maintain balance, given all that you're trying to do and, and how big the problems that you're addressing are. Yeah, it's funny. I don't feel superhuman at all. I think I feel like I'm a rack. I'm disorganized. I forget things. I was just telling you, like, my calendar turns off sometimes, and then I don't show up for meetings. You know, I think um, – and I've been trying, actually. Um, you know, I think like many people my age, I've started a little bit of a meditation practice trying to figure out how do we keep calm in an age of social media and just overwhelming stimulus. Um, but also trying to think about, like, how can you help – kind of press yourself to like really be in service to others and do good things without needing to be perfect, <laughs> um, without needing 
to be the only one who can solve a problem. <laughs> um, and part of, I think, the way I think about that and what keeps me going is that a lot of the things I've been talking about, they really aren't just me, and I'm not just saying that. Like, there's a whole community. Like, I learned... I learned what I learned as a student and how to work on on these access issues from others. And we did them together. And we kind of, we felt like we were a collective. We were a cohort. We kind of cared for each other. And I think that, that in its best form, one of the things I love about working on the law and political economy issues is that we've built a real community. And if you really ask me, what's law and political economy? It's, it's a network of people. It's a community. It's people who are trying to figure out how to ask questions across silos in different ways so that you know, I have a question about banking, um, but I work on criminal defense. Who do I talk to? Um, we're trying to build that network. And so that's something I also say to my students, that their community is going to really matter to them. It's something I think many people would say looking back on law school. It's your community that's going to matter most to you. And so you may build that and nurture that and try also try not to, not to take yourself too seriously um, because, um, because ultimately when you do achieve things, it'll be because of this community. Um, and when you fail, you're, you're not the only one who's ever failed. Uh, in fact, that's part of the human condition. And we need to learn to be a little bit more kind to each other and ourselves um, uh, because, yes, we all do screw up. Well, I'm delighted that you're part of this community and, and extraordinarily proud of the of the work that you've done in the world. It's, it's made a huge difference, and it's an astonishing legacy for any scholar, um, let alone a scholar who's done all the many things that you've done. So thank you very much. My pleasure. My pleasure.